Well, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 21 through 24, that's the text this morning. These are the final four verses in Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. I've titled the message this morning, Farewell to the Queen. And you may be wondering to yourself, uh, what, uh, what's the relevance uh, to such a message title? If you can remember uh, back 13, 14 months ago when we first embarked on this journey together, uh, I mentioned that Ephesians is the queen of the epistles. Romans would be the king of the epistles, uh, and Ephesians, I would submit to you then, is the queen of the epistles. And the reason I would say that is because most of Paul's other letters are written for specific uh, reasons to deal with specific issues within uh, the churches to whom he writes, Uh, but Paul's letter to the church at Rome and Paul's letter that bears the name uh, Ephesians were, were really doctrinally foundation. Uh, foundation-laying letters. And, uh, and so by many commentators throughout uh, history, they have been referred to as uh, the king and the queen of the epistles, respectively. What I want to do this morning, before we uh, actually look at the final four verses that Paul has penned here, his closing greeting, that final benediction, is I want to fly back over Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus with you. Uh, Maybe a a 30,000 foot flyover where we can kind of look down uh, at where we've been. We can look down at the landscape that we've covered uh, together. I mean, it has been 14 months and 50 sermons since we began our study in Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. We've reached the end this morning. I hope that you've been challenged, encouraged, edified, as we have waded out together into the deep waters of God's Word. If you want to go ahead and turn back to chapter 1, you can do that. You can kind of follow along as we, as we move here. But uh, I want to just remind us again where we have been. I mentioned early on and all the way through that Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus can really be broken down into three distinct parts. Uh, chapters 1 through 3 are very doctrinal in nature. They are the foundation chapters upon which Paul will build the practical theology uh, that comes thereafter. Chapters 1 through 3, those are those foundation chapters. Uh, Chapter 4 through chapter 6, verse 9, those are those practical chapters that that tell us how, how we are to live and how we are to relate within the body of Christ. And then Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, really through the end of Paul's letter, that is the Christian's warfare. Uh, Those three divisions would be the Christian's walk, uh, I'm sorry, the Christian's wealth, first of all, doctrinal chapters, chapters 1 through 3, the Christian's walk, chapter 4 through chapter 6, verse 9, and then the believer's warfare. Wealth, walk, warfare. When you think Ephesians, think wealth, Walk warfare. Turning back to chapter 1, the key verse uh, for all of uh, chapters 1 through 3 is found in chapter 1, verse 3. If you've got your Bible there, you can see Paul says this. He says, we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That speaks to our wealth, what we have in Christ. And what Paul does after uh, verse 3 here is he begins to enumerate all of the blessings that we have in Christ. Everything that Christ has secured for us and procured for us as a result of his substitutionary atonement, his death, and his victorious resurrection. Everything that has been conferred upon us. Or what Paul is speaking of there when he says we've been blessed. That is believers, by the way. Believers have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And so you ask yourself, well, Paul, what are some of those blessings? And he says, I'm so glad you asked and I'm going to give three chapters to it. Paul tells us, beginning in verse 4 of chapter 1, that we were chosen in him before the foundation of the world. Not because of us, but in spite of us. One prominent theologian, this would be an old dead guy, said, I'm so glad that God chose me before the foundation of the world because he certainly wouldn't have chosen me afterwards. God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. He predestined us Uh, to be adopted as his sons. Uh, Prior to this, aliens and strangers 
But we've been adopted into the family, into the household of God. What a blessing. What a spiritual blessing to be chosen in him and to be adopted into his family. Paul goes on and he says we've been redeemed by his blood. Remember, uh, redeemed or redemption. Uh, It means to be purchased off the slave block of sin. I mean, there, there we were. Uh, on, on the slave block of, of sin and the, the, the tyranny of sin, and God has purchased us. He's bought us back. He's redeemed us at the cost of his son's blood. Paul says he's lavished his grace upon us. Verse 10, he's made known to us the mystery of his will. That's not some kind of mystical statement there. What, what was the mystery of God's will? Well, the mystery of God's will is that He is uniting all things in Christ. Jesus Christ is the head, and all things are going to be summed up in Christ. God is taking two two peoples, Jews and Gentiles, and because of the shed blood of Christ, he's reconciled them both to God and then reconciled them both to each other. He's killed hostility. That's the mystery of his will, that all men are saved, irregardless of background, nationality, uh, ethnic Um, background by the blood of Jesus Christ and by the blood of Jesus Christ alone. It's the mystery of God's will. I tell you what, if if you and I had set out to pen or to write a redemption story, it would not have looked like God's redemption story. That God would crush his own son. It's a mystery of mysteries. Paul goes on in verse 11 of chapter 1 that tells us that we've obtained an inheritance you think about an inheritance this side of eternity. Many of you have potentially been the recipient of an inheritance from family members, perhaps a mother or a father that preceded you in death. But that inheritance uh, is, is nothing compared to the inheritance that is reserved for us in heaven. And God's given us a down payment or he's given us a deposit. That's verse 13, right? That's the Holy Spirit. God has guaranteed that he's going to make good on all of his promises, that they will all be yes and amen in Jesus Christ, and he has sealed us. He's marked us off. He's given us an endowment now of the inheritance that is to come, that deposit of the promised Holy Spirit. Look at verse 17. We've been given a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Christ. In other words, that very Holy Spirit that has been given to us helps us to know God, helps us to understand his word. And you think about your life before you came to Christ and how you understood Scripture or how you didn't understand Scripture. And as a result of the illuminating ministry of the Holy Spirit, we can now open God's word And we can rightly divide it. We can understand it. We can apply it. And by God's grace, we can even live it out. Not on our own. By God's grace and through the working of the Holy Spirit. Verse 18, we had the eyes of our hearts enlightened that we might know the hope to which he called us. Prior to our conversion, no hope. None. Dead in trespasses and sins. But God has given us a great hope. In Christ Jesus, the hope of salvation, the hope of eternal life, the hope of forgiveness of sin. Verse 19, Christ's immeasurably great power works within us. You know, there are a lot of Christians that mope around in the Christian life and they, they feel like, I don't have much, I'm not much. Christian, get a grip. The immeasurable power of Christ works in you. We talked back in that uh, group of sermons that we measure absolutely everything. I mean, you want to go buy a gallon of milk? We measure it in gallons. You want to buy a house? We, we mark it off in square footage. Your age, 365 days in a calendar year. Everything we do. You want to travel to the moon? You know, we're we're, we're looking at stars out there. We we measure it all in light years. Everything we do has a measure to it. But let me remind you, Christians, that Christ's immeasurably great power works toward you and within you. 
God's rich mercy, his great love, his undeserved grace have made us alive in Christ. Again, spiritually dead. We were born into this world, physically alive, spiritually dead. Just like John chapter 3 tells us, the story there of Nicodemus, we need to be born again. To be born again. We've been made alive in Christ. Paul goes on in chapter 2, verse 6. You're following along here. We've been raised up and seated in the heavenly places. And you say, now, wait a second. I'm, I'm sitting on a pew here this morning. Well, this is the tension between the already and not yet. And Paul writes this here, as a matter of fact, when, when, when he says this in chapter 2, verse 6, we've been raised up and seated in the heavenly places in Christ. He writes it as if it's already taken place. He's shown us the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness. We've been saved by grace apart from our own doing. What does grace mean, friends? Any of you know the acrostic for grace? God's riches at Christ's expense. It's a good way to categorize that in your mind. God's riches at Christ's expense. God has been gracious to us. In other words, he has not treated us as our sins deserve. We've been saved by his grace, not not by any working or any doing or any striving or any affiliation or any title that we may bear this side of eternity. If you're sitting here this morning and you know Christ savingly, it is because of his grace from beginning to end. We add nothing to the equation. He saved us by his grace. And not only to save us by his grace, but look at chapter 2, verse 10. He, he He has made us his workmanship. He's designed us to be his handiwork for good works which he prepared in advance for us to walk in. We've been brought near by the blood of Christ. Chapter 2, verse 13. Look at verses 14 through 16 of chapter 2. The vertical hostility between God and the horizontal hostility between men has been reconciled through the cross. Look at verse 18. Through Christ we have access in the Spirit to the Father. Where, where once we did not have access to the Father, where once we were denied access to the Father, now, because of Christ's work for us. We can come boldly before the throne of grace in our time of need. We have freedom of access to a holy God. Verse 19, we're no longer strangers and aliens, but we're fellow citizens, members of the household of God. When you think about a stranger and an alien, you think about the one that's wandering aimlessly. God has given us an incredible purpose in life, right? To know him and to make him known, if you really distilled it down. Fellow citizens, members of the household of God. Chapter 2, verse 22, we're a dwelling place for the Holy Spirit. Let Let me just pause right there. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Oh, be careful, little hands, what you touch. Oh, be careful, little feet, where you go. For the Father up above is looking down with love. Be careful, little eyes, what you see. Remember the old children's song? Well, friends, that's not just a children's song. If we are the very vessel for the Holy Spirit, then we need to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called, right? We need to flee from sin and to pursue righteousness and holiness along with those who call on the Lord with a pure heart. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? He who has a pure heart and uh, and, and clean, is clean, pure spirit. We're the beneficiaries of the unsearchable riches of Christ, chapter 3, verse 8. Again, there's that word unsearchable. Paul uses it multiple times throughout his letter. Unfathomable, unsearchable riches, innumerable riches. Untold riches, untold wealth we have in Christ.
Look at verse 16, chapter 3, verse 16. We've been strengthened with power through his spirit in our inner being. Verse 17, we're rooted and grounded in love because Christ dwells in our hearts through faith. Look at verses 18 and 19, chapter 3. We're the recipients of a wide, long, high, and deep love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge. Like, Christians, you, you don't have to wake up every day and, and like, hold the, the Christian rose in your hand and, and wonder, does he love me? Does he love me not? Does he love me? Does he love me not? Yes, he loves you. Enough to crush his own son for you. What a love we have. Verse 20, we have a strong God who's able to do far more abundantly than all we ask, think, or imagine. Think about that when you consider your prayer life, friends. I think so often we pray for small, tangible, understandable things. I think our prayers need to be governed by Scripture, absolutely. As a matter of fact, 1 John 5, I think 14 in the following says, this is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if he hears us, then we know we have that which we've asked of him. Now, the key word there, we talked about this last week briefly, is according to his will, praying according to his will. Well, how do you know his will? Well, you have to know his word. If we're not spending time in God's word, then we're going to be hard-pressed to pray God's will And so we're always going to wonder, is God going to answer or is God not going to answer? God always answers the prayers that are according to his will. Let's spend much time in God's word so that we know his will. But then when we pray, we need to be reminded that in our smallness, in our finiteness, that God is able to do immeasurably, there's the word again, more than we can ever ask, fathom, think, Let me ask you this question, friends. That about brings us to the end of of the wealth that Paul enumerates for us in chapters 1 through 3, those uh, those doctrinally foundation uh, chapters. Let me ask you this question. Have you thanked him recently? Just thinking back through those spiritual blessings that you have in Christ, if you know him savingly, have you thanked him recently? Specifically. Have you, have you sat down and thanked him specifically for the blessings that we have been given in Christ? What are some of those spiritual blessings that we've been given in Christ that you and I are tempted to take for granted? Think about that for a moment. That we're tempted to take for granted. I would encourage you this week to spend some time, uh, and, and you can incorporate this in your thanksgiving time of your prayer, but I would encourage you this week, to incorporate some of those spiritual blessings that you are tempted to take for granted into your Thanksgiving time of prayer this week. Thank the Lord for them. Immeasurable blessings, untold wealth and blessings in Christ. Are we thanking him? Keep flying here with me. Chapters 4 through chapter 6, verse 9. These are the practical chapters. This is where Paul tells us what we're to do because of who we are. We cannot get those two mixed up. If we try to do without Ephesians chapter 1 through 3, we we are short-circuiting God's intention and desire for our lives. And uh, we will launch out in our own strength. We will seek our own glory uh, in doing. We'll have all the wrong motivation. We must... We must interpret chapter 4 through chapter 6, verse 9, in light of what God has already done for us in Christ. So, as a result, Paul says, here's what you are to do. Here's who you are to be. Here's how you should speak. Here's how you should act. Here's how you should think. Here's how you should relate to others in light of all the spiritual blessings that you have in Christ. Key verse here for these practical chapters is found right here in chapter 4, verse 1. Paul says, I therefore, as a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. We've moved from our wealth now to our walk, from the doctrinal to the practical. And Paul speaks first here, beginning in chapter 4, to our general relationships. 
And then he's going to speak to our specific relationships. Look at some of the things that that Paul tells us here that we are to do or that we're called to to do or to be. Look at uh, chapter 4, verse 2. Paul says that we're called to walk in all humility and gentleness with patience, bearing with one another in love. Boy, how are we doing there? That is not our natural disposition. Humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. Verse 3, we should be eager to maintain the unity, the bond of peace. How, how are we doing at, at pursuing and, and seeking to maintain unity in the body of Christ? That takes intentionality and it takes work. It's very easy for disunity to come into the body of Christ. Are we maintaining the unity, the bond of peace Look at verse 13. God is growing us to mature manhood, to the measure and the stature of all the fullness of Christ. That's to be reflected in our relationships. Look at verse 14. We're no longer to be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. God wants us to be growing, to be maturing. God saves us as we are, but he never leaves us as we are. It's the process of sanctification. We're to be growing up, growing to maturity in Christ. Look at verses 17 through 19, chapter 4. Paul says that we're no longer to walk, and he tells us how that is. We're no longer to walk in 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 the darkness of our understanding. We're no longer to walk alienated from the life of God. We're no longer to walk ignorant. We're no longer to walk hard-hearted or calloused or given over to sensuality or loving every kind of impurity. We're no longer to walk as we did before we came to Christ. We must walk in the newness of life that Paul writes about in chapters 1 through 3. Even new, a new nature. And so Paul tells us right here in verse 22 through 24, just let your finger or your eyeballs drop just a little bit. He says, you're to put off the old self, which is corrupt and deceitful. That's who I was before I came to Christ. And instead to be renewed by the spirit of our minds. He says, put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Friends, that is a daily activity. Every single day when you wake up and throughout the day, there is to be the ongoing process of putting off the old man and putting on the new man. And that's a fight. That's a battle. We call that pursuing holiness. In verse 25, we're to put away all falsehood. We're to speak the truth with one another in love. And prior to coming to Christ, we were master manipulators, master liars, master benders of the truth. Paul says, no more. No more. You've been made new. That's a part of the old man. We don't speak that way anymore. We speak in in terms of what is true and righteous. In verses 26 through 27, we're to control our anger. We're to be careful not to let the sun go down on our anger. Why? Because anger, like an ember in the fire, it pops out. You, you ever been to a, a, to a campfire uh, and you hear the fire pop and it spits out an ember? Well, sometimes that ember will set a whole forest ablaze. But if we let that ember of bitterness or envy or strife or jealousy or anger, if we let it smolder, it'll burn. And it'll burn down our relationships. It'll burn down relationships within the body of Christ. It'll burn down relationships in marriage. It'll burn down relationships uh, with our children. Look at verse 30. Paul tells us that we're not to grieve the Holy Spirit who sealed us for the day of redemption. In verse 31, we're, we're to let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander and malice be put away from us. Again, that's part of the old man. And it's a daily battle, it's a daily fight, it's a daily struggle, and all throughout the day. Look at verse 32, we're to be kind, tender-hearted, and forgiving, just as God in Christ has forgiven us. 
Friends, I think one of the relationships that we withhold forgiveness in the most are our marriages. I think one of the relationships that we withhold forgiveness in the most is our marriage. Because your spouse is the one who sees you all day long, every day, who knows the good, the bad, the ugly, who knows the history and the present, and has the tendency to create expectations on the future based on the past. And that can harbor, and that can build up. You think about calcium on the, on the inside of pipes. It makes it hard for water to pass through. And when we, when we let bitterness uh, and unforgiveness build up over time, do you know what it inhibits? Grace. Grace. I forget somewhere along the line that God didn't treat me as my sins deserve. I forget somewhere along the line that God has forgiven me, that God has pardoned my sin. And because of that, that buildup over time, I'm tempted to withhold the very same grace towards others that God has lavishly displayed towards me. Marriages aren't the only relationship that this takes place in, obviously, but I think it's one of the relationships just because of the proximity of individuals that it is withheld in the most. We're no longer to steal anymore or to do honest work so that we have something to share with those who have a need, verse 28. Look at chapter 4, verse 29. We're to guard our tongue, letting no unwholesome talk come out of our mouths, we oftentimes think, okay, unwholesome talk, those are four-letter words. Those are, those are that's foul language. Well, Paul goes on and he, and he defines for us what unwholesome talk is. He says, unwholesome talk is anything that does not build up the hearer. It's anything that does not impart grace to the hearer. It's anything that is not constructive. There's no such thing as an idle word, friends. Our, our words are either building up or they are like a wrecking ball tearing down. How are we speaking? How are we speaking? Again, how you speak has to be informed by chapters 1 through 3, who you are. Who are you? Because of who you are. Thus, speak differently, Paul says. Look at chapter 5. We're to be imitators of God. We're to walk in love as Christ loved us. Look at verses 3 and 4. We're to put away all sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness, filthiness, foolishness, crude joking, and instead we're to be thankful. We need to spend more time being thankful than than we spend letting our our, our lips flap. That's what Paul's saying there. Look at verses 8 and 9. We're to walk as children of light in all that is good and right and true. We once walked as children of darkness, right? Matter of fact, so we've been saved out of. We were once children of wrath, Paul tells us back in Ephesians chapter 2. But now, he says, walk in the light as children of the light. Paul tells us in verse 10, chapter 5, that we're to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Verses 11 through 14 were to expose rather than conceal darkness. Prior to coming to Christ, we, we loved to conceal darkness. As a matter of fact, John tells us in John's gospel that men love the darkness rather than the light because the light exposes their evil deeds. This is the verdict, he says. Light has come into the world, but men hate the light. You see, in our pre-conversion state, we loved darkness. We loved to operate within the shroud and within the cloak of darkness. But now, I don't have to, because I know that I have a God who knows me fully and yet forgives me still. That's not license to sin by any means, but there is freedom to walk in the light. We're called to walk in the light, to be children of the light. Verses 15 and 16, chapter 5, we're to walk not only as children of the light, but we're to walk as wise, not as unwise. We're to make the most of every opportunity. In other words, we're we're, we're not to just float through life by default, but we are to 
live life by design, intentionality. If you don't plan your time, someone else or something else will. And oftentimes it's not for holy purposes. Make the best or the most of every opportunity. Paul goes on and he says, we're not to be drunk with wine, but we're rather to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We're to address one another with heavenly melodies. How you doing there, friends? Chapter 5, verse 19. Been any singing going on to each other this morning? Psalms, hymns, spiritual songs? Paul says we're to address one another with heavenly melody. We're to give thanks always and for everything. Chapter 5, verse 20. Boy. Always and for everything. Even in the storm. And then we're to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. All of that, chapters 4 through chapter 5, verse 21, that deals with general relationships. How how we are to function within the body of Christ, just general relationships. How, How I speak and how I think and am I loving correctly? Am I forgiving as God has forgiven me in Christ? And that doesn't mean that those principles don't carry over to the specific relationships that Paul outlines next. Those are general relationship principles. Now, in chapter 5, verses 22 and the following, Paul begins to move into the specific relationships here. And he says, wives, you are to submit to your husbands in everything as to the Lord. Husbands, you are to love your wives. That is to give yourself for her, to wash her with the water of the word. You're to love her as Jesus Christ loved the church and he laid down his life for her. This is what you are to do because of who you are. Husbands, you're to hold fast to your wife and your wife alone. Wives, you're to hold fast to your husband and your husband alone. Chapter 5, verse 31. Husbands, love your wives. Verse 33. Wives, respect your husbands. This is, this is the, the mutual love and care and respect that is to characterize Christian marriages. Then he moves into children. Children are to obey their parents, beginning chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. Obey your parents in the Lord, because you're under their authority as long as you live in their home, and you are to honor them for life. Obey, children, your parents in the Lord. Fathers, here's another one for you. Refrain from provoking or inciting your children to anger. Instead, bring them up in the fear and instruction of the Lord. How are we doing there, dads? How are we doing there? Do you know that you are to be, and this is challenging for me, but you are to be the priest of your home? You're to be the shepherd of your home. You're to be the pastor of your home. I'm up here for 45 minutes one day a week. You're going to go home and you're going to have 167 other hours. Who's the pastor? Who's the shepherd? Who's the prophet in your home? It's going to say, thus says the Lord. Bring your children up in the fear and the instruction of the Lord. Slaves, that's workers, we said, in our context. We're to obey our earthly masters. Employers, you're to treat your your employees with respect, Paul says. You're not to threaten them. Remembering that their Lord and your Lord are the same Lord and he shows no partiality, Paul says. Here's a challenge that brings us to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 9. We're just kind of flying over here, but here's a challenge. I would encourage you to take some time this week and look back uh, through chapters 4, 5, and chapter 6 through verse 9 here and write down areas that you need to adjust your stride in so that you can fulfill the mandate in Ephesians 4.1 to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. So my challenge to you in, in chapters 1 through 3 was to, to take some time this week and, and to, to, to look at those spiritual blessings that you might be tempted to take for granted and incorporate some of those into your thanksgiving time in your prayer this week. 
And then as you look at chapters 4 through chapter 6, verse 9, my encouragement is look back through those verses and see if there aren't some ways, and there will be, there are for me, some ways that you need to adjust your stride so that you can walk in a worthy way. That may, that may be in your general relationships. That may be in your marriage. That may be uh, parents to children. It may be employer-employee relationships. But in what ways do you need to adjust your stride to bring it more in line with who you are? Who you are. I mean, friends, if we know Christ, you're a walking testimony to the living God of the universe. Do we fail? We do. But you're a living, walking, talking testimony to the Lord. And so we always want to be growing then in bearing more of his likeness and walking in that worthy manner that Paul tells us to walk in. Chapter 6, verse 10 through 24, it deals with our warfare. Every believer is engaged in war this side of eternity. Here's the key verse here. Chapter 6, verse 11 Paul says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Paul told us that we don't, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Remember, wrestle is that, that hand-to-hand combat word there. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We're fighting, we're wrestling against cosmic powers, present darkness, spiritual forces. Therefore, Paul tells us, we're to take up the whole armor of God. Remember, I said that's an imperative. It's not a suggestion. Paul's not saying take up the armor if you want to. Take up the armor if you think you need it. Take up the armor. Do it. Do it now. Do it without delay. That's the emphasis of the text there in chapter 6, verse 13. Paul says, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. By the way, do you notice that's the second time evil day is mentioned in Paul's letter? You're to make the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. And here Paul tells us that we're engaged in spiritual warfare. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand in the evil day. Friends, this isn't Pleasantville. It's not Pleasantville. Paul begins to tell us what what equipment, what hardware uh, we have been given, what armament we've been given by God. Each one of these pieces of armor really points to Jesus Christ, by the way. As we studied through these, we, we, we looked at those. Paul tells us to fasten on the belt of truth. Okay, we're, we're, we're to have a firm grasp on God's revealed word, but we're also to be growing in the character quality of truthfulness. The man or the woman, the Christian man or woman who's growing in a life of integrity has a ready defense against the, the, the darts of the evil one. Integrity of life. Truthfulness. Paul says, fasten on the belt of truth. Then he tells us to put on the breastplate of righteousness. Okay? What does the breastplate protect? We said it protects the heart, right? The thorax. Everything contained between your neck and your hips. Most notably, your heart. That's what Satan is after. He's after your heart and he's after your mind. Those are two prime targets for our adversary. Paul says, put on the breastplate of righteousness. In other words, understand the gospel. Understand who you are in Christ, that you're blameless, without spot, wrinkle, or any such defect. Then he goes on and he tells us to put on the readiness of the gospel shoes of peace, then to take up the shield of faith so that we can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one, put on the helmet of salvation. How you think is important. Why? Because you do what you do because you think what you think. Right? God's word needs to be uh, our, our hearts and our minds need to, need to be marinated in God's word. I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you, David said. Put on the helmet of salvation. Paul goes on and he says, take the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Remember we said this is, this is the little dagger. This isn't, this isn't the broad sword that takes two hands to swing that big, chunky, heavy sword. This is that little dagger. We said in that message that that we need to know God's word specifically so that we can counter specific temptations from Satan. We can't just throw our Bible at him and and, and say, uh, take that. No, when he tempts you, you need to have a ready defense, a specific defense from Scripture, the sword of the Spirit. And then Paul tells us that we need to pray at all times. In other words, uh, we we can... uh, 
not fight successfully unless we are in prayer. Friends, are there any holes in your armor? Don't forget that your adversary knows where you're weak and you can be sure that he'll attack you there. So, with all that being said, we have two minutes, 30 seconds. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 21 through 24. Let me encourage you to stand. That was all an intro. Here we are at the concluding four verses of Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 21 through 24, pens the following words. So that you may know how I am and what I'm doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, he will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. You may be seated. You're thinking to yourself, there's eight points on my outline. He now has a minute, 23 seconds. There's no way we're going to get through this. Trust me, we'll do it. Hang on here. What I have for you are eight questions, okay? You can read the rest of my notes online, but eight simple questions, things I think we see in the life of Tychicus, and then things that I think we see in Paul's closing benediction here. First thing on your outline, are you a beloved brother? Look at verse 21, Paul says, so that you may know how I am and what I'm doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother, Paul calls him. Notice that Paul doesn't call him a beloved brother, he calls Tychicus the beloved brother. Tychicus was probably well known uh, to, to the churches in Rome and throughout Asia where Paul ministered. Paul calls him beloved, by the way, that's agapitos, that's dear one or well loved. Hey, let me ask you this, would anyone say that about you? Would anyone say he or she is well-loved to me? A brother or a sister in Christ. In the context here, brother means not so much fellow Christian, though Tychicus was a fellow Christian, as much as the, the, the endearing term here, beloved brother, means co-worker or helper. Beloved brother carries the idea of walking beside. Tychicus was an intimate friend of Paul. Let me ask you this question. Who are you walking beside? Who are your intimate friends within the body of Christ? People that know you and know you well. Who are your close companions? There's no mavericks in the Christian life. Lone rangers get shot. God has designed us to live and function within a body of Christ. God made us to be interdependent, not independent. But our natural disposition is usually towards independence. Are you a beloved brother? Are you a good, a good helper, a good co-laborer in the faith? Who really knows you, like really knows you? Who has access to your life? That person would probably be your beloved brother. Question number two, are you a faithful servant? In verse 21, Paul calls him not only a beloved brother, but a faithful minister in the Lord. Faithful there, it's the Greek word pistos. It has the idea of, of trustworthiness. Does that describe you? Are you trustworthy? Can you be relied upon, leaned on? Most of our Bibles translate the word here, minister. It's the word diakonos. It's where we get our, our word deacon. It really means servant. That's why I've put it there in your notes. Are you a faithful servant? A faithful servant, one who's trustworthy, sure, and true, can be depended upon. I mean, Tychicus served Paul faithfully for over a decade, and yet his name is relatively obscure to us. I mean, we read through our Bibles, and we know all about Paul, but what do you know about Tychicus? But yet his ministry was indispensable to Paul. He was a faithful servant. You know, that's what faithful servants do. They slip into the background. They're content with relative uh, obscurity. They don't need to be in the spotlight. That needs to be us on an increasing level, that we just slip back and get out of God's way and serve faithfully. We oftentimes desire those high-profile ministries, if you're anything like me. Uh, and I know that you're more like me than you are not like me because no temptation has seized you except that which is common to man. We typically like those high-profile opportunities and positions where people know us. 
And we get the accolades and the attaboys. We just need to remember John 3.30 that he must become greater and we must become less. We don't need to be recognized. Tychicus wasn't. As a matter of fact, he's not in the Hebrews Hall of Faith. Luke didn't write anything about him in Acts. Tychicus didn't do anything that was worthy of Paul's noting in Scripture. Yet he was a faithful servant. Question number three, are you a ready messenger? A ready messenger. Paul says he will tell you everything. Two things Tychicus was going to uh, bring here. Two pieces of news that Tychicus was to bring to the church at Ephesus. Number one uh, was information about Paul's condition. Paul was imprisoned in Rome, and we know that the the church at Ephesus was concerned. As a matter of fact, back in chapter 3, Paul, Paul said, I want you not to be concerned. Don't be burdened. Don't be heavy-hearted because you know that my imprisonment is actually for your good or is actually for your glory. But they were concerned about him. They were concerned about him. But I think that Tychicus was also coming with the glad tidings of gospel encouragement. That's number four. Are you a gospel encourager, a ready messenger, but a gospel encourager. Look at verse 22. Paul said, I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. He may encourage your hearts. Think about the very letter. So think we just walked through Ephesians. Think about all the encouragement that is contained there. All the spiritual blessings in chapters 1 through 3 and all the practical application of 4 through 6 This is the very letter that Tychicus was bringing with him to the church at Ephesus. Tychicus delivered the letter to them. He delivered the letter. And I think along with that came lots of encouragement. Paul says that he may encourage your hearts. Are you a gospel encourager? And then lastly here, let's briefly look at this closing benediction. Paul mentions four things here. He says, peace be to the brothers. And so my question to you is, are you growing in peace? Are you growing as a peacemaker? First, we need to be rightly related to God, vertical peace, so that we can have horizontal peace with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Are you growing as a peacemaker? Do you gravitate towards peace or do you gravitate towards strife? Are you an agent of reconciliation or an agent of dissension? Which better describes you? Are you growing in peace? Paul's well-wish or his prayer for the church at Ephesus was that there be peace. Peace would mark their relationships because of the peace they had in Christ. Number six, are you growing in love with faith? Paul says, peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Think what Paul's doing here is he's reminding us that love must accompany and be the expression of our faith. Let me rewind that statement. Love must accompany and be the expression of our faith. Back in chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, Paul expressed great joy and thankfulness for the Ephesians because he had heard about their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and their subsequent love for all the saints. Their subsequent love for all the saints. Friends, a faith that does not produce love for others, especially amongst believers, must have its legitimacy questioned. A faith that does not produce love for others must have its legitimacy questioned. There'll be individuals whom you struggle to like, but you must love everybody, and so must I. We all have those individuals in our lives that we would probably at times sell for a Snickers bar. But you've got to love them. You've got to love them. And here at the end of Paul's letter, Paul prays that love would continue to characterize the church at Ephesus. Paul goes on and he says, uh, Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ. That word grace again. Really what Paul's doing is he's taking three words here. Peace, love, and Grace. Those are three themes that are woven throughout Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. Have you noticed that? Go back and study this week. Peace, love, and grace are the three major themes that are woven through Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. Are you growing in grace? He who has been loved much, loves much. He who has been shown much grace or she who has been shown much grace, shows much grace. Grace. He who has been forgiven much, forgives much.
Are you growing in grace to the degree that we understand the grace that God has shown us in Christ? To that same degree, we'll be growing and showing it towards others. And then eight and last here, is Christ your treasure? Is Christ your treasure? Paul ends with this phrase here, with love incorruptible. Grace be to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he ends with love incorruptible. That word incorruptible there, it's it's an unusual expression, but its meaning is beautiful. It's the same word that's translated immortality over in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul said, for this perishable body must put on the imperishable, this mortal body must put on immortality. Same word there, immortality, incorruptible. Same word. You see, elsewhere in Ephesians, Paul has referred to God's love for believers and for Christ's love for them. He's referred to the believers' love for one another. He's referred to believing husbands' love for their wives. He's referred to the believers' love in general. But this is the only place explicitly in Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus where love for Christ, our love for Christ, is made explicit. Over and over and over again, we're told how much God loves us. Go back to chapters 1 through 3. Blessings innumerable. We're told how husbands are to love their wives. We're told how believers are to love one another. But this is the only place in Paul's letter where he explicitly instructs us to love the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul closes the letter with the same uh, emphasis that he began it on. I mean, if you remember the, the salutation that Paul opened with, grace, peace, and love. And Paul ends his letter, grace, peace, and love. Paul closes his letter with a stress on our personal relationship and commitment to Christ. The idea here between, uh, behind the word incorruptible, it's, it's it, think unceasing, undying, never diminishing, always. That's to characterize our love for Christ. In other words, is Christ your treasure? Remember when Jesus was asked by a prominent lawyer which commandment is the greatest, and he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Now, we know this. Unfortunately, some of the Ephesian believers lost their first love, and Jesus reprimands them in Revelation 2, verse 4, and the following. But at least here, In the present context, Paul was able to commend them for their unceasing love for the Lord Jesus Christ. Does it characterize your life and does it characterize my life? Are you a beloved brother? Are you a faithful servant? Are you a ready messenger? Are you a gospel encourager? Are you growing in peace, growing in love, growing in grace? And is Jesus Christ your treasure? I hope the book of Ephesians has encouraged you to all those things. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, we would encourage you to cast yourself upon him. You have no hope apart from Jesus Christ. His mercy and grace are what are needed for the pardon of your sin, friends.